Greetings and welcome to In Tune with VHBC, a podcast about music and worship at Vestavia Hills Baptist Church. I'm Marty Watts, Minister of Music at VHBC. In this episode, I'll talk with Ginny and Bill Bug and share about the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss any future episodes. Now let's get in tune. The story behind the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, is filled with tragedy and loss. Horatio Spafford was a 19th century Chicago lawyer and Presbyterian elder. In 1873, Horatio and his wife Anna planned a vacation to England with their four daughters. A last-minute business matter kept Horatio Spafford from traveling with his family, but his wife and four daughters went ahead. On their journey, the ship they were traveling on, the Ville du Havre, was struck by another ship and sank. All four of the Spafford's daughters perished in that accident. A few days later, when Anna arrived in England, she sent a telegram to her husband that simply read, Saved Alone. Horatio began his journey to join his wife in England, and it was then that Horatio Spafford wrote the text for It Is Well With My Soul. The tune for this hymn was written specifically for this text by Philip Bliss, who was a prolific gospel hymn writer in the 19th century. And the tune is named for the ship that Anna and the Spafford's four daughters were on, the Ville du Havre. Reflecting on the first line of the hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my way, Lisa McKay writes, I used to think of peace primarily as a stillness, a pause, a silence, a clarity. But that sort of peace is not the peace of rivers. There is a majestic, hushed sort of calm to rivers. But they are not silent, and they are certainly not still. Even the most placid of rivers is going somewhere. I've stopped expecting peace to look like the pristine silence that follows a midnight snowfall. I'm coming to appreciate a different sort of peace instead, a peace that pushes forward, rich with mud, swelling and splashing and alive with the music of water meeting rock. This podcast episode will conclude with an organ arrangement of It Is Well, played by our own Dr. Beth McGinnis. If you have a hymn to suggest for a future episode of the podcast, feel free to email me at marty at vhbc.com. These weekly conversations on the podcast have been such a treat for me to get to talk to different folks each week and to share these conversations with the folks listening on the podcast. And today, uh, I'm glad to have my uh, second couple guests. Uh, we had the Nordlands a few weeks ago, and now we have Jenny and Bill Bug. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Uh, appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to, to, to do this and to 
talk with me and to share share some thoughts with the folks listening. Glad to do it. I um I my first question I have to ask: How did y'all meet? <laughs> you want to tell them that? Well, we met when we were small children. Uh, our parents lived close to each other, and Bill's dad had loved to play tennis and had built a clay tennis court with his own hands and strung lights on it. And my parents came over to play tennis at night with him and we played in the sandbox and that's how we met. I would have been three or four at the time and he would have been four or five. So we've known each other a long time. <laughs> 72 years. Wow. <laughs> wow. So then did you go to school together and, and, yeah. Continue. Actually, I lived in a little community that was out from Germantown. Germantown was out from Memphis, but Forest Hill had its own school. And I went to that school until the sixth grade. So we, at that point, they closed our school because there were so few students. We had a couple of grades with only one person in it. So they closed our school and we all went to Germantown. And that's where Jenny was. So we were in school then together around each other. And we didn't start dating till the very end of high school. And dated other people during college, too. Went to different colleges. Mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't let me go to Agnes Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but all, all from the sandbox. How, that's that's that, right. Quite a yep. story. Wow. Um, so in those growing up years, what were your musical experiences? Well, I took piano. My, my family... Every Southern girl had to take piano. So I had 12 years of piano. My parents agonized through me taking my taking piano for about five years and then gave up. Um, and then as a teenager, um, I was in the, the youth choir at church. And my last year in high school, the band director decided that he would make an attempt at having a chorus. <laughs> and I think there were 12 of us. And I remember we sang uh, Silver Bells on a Christmas concert. I remember the ding dong, ding dong, ding dong section. <laughs> um, we went so to a very small high very school. Very small high school. There were 49 in my graduating class. <clears throat> um, so my experiences with the music, although I love music and I love to sing, uh, were pretty limited until I got to college. And Bill was an English major in college. Yeah. He did. He had went back an extra year to get all the requirements for a music major. Oh, okay. He didn't really start singing until his junior year in college. Wow how did how did that um, how did that come about as far as your college experience, Bill? Well, the it was such a different time, um, just incredibly different. <laughs> the um, the man who was the chairman of the music department, I guess was the way it was distributed then, was Dupree Rain. And he was uh, my voice teacher and also the this director of music. Furman. This is mm -hmm. at Furman University. Mm -hmm. Also the director of music at First Baptist Church, Greenville, where Furman is located. And so it all sort of centered around him. I started taking voice. Uh, I was in Furman Singers already. <clears throat> and I started taking voice. And then he he uh, wanted me to sing in the church choir and ensured that I knew that I'd, not everybody got that opportunity. He drilled that into me. I was, <laughs> I was being blessed by mm -hmm. being asked to mm -hmm. be in the choir. So I sang in the choir and 
was pretty well invested in the English major. <clears throat> so far I, I, into it that I couldn't really just drop and do something else. So I went ahead and finished the English major. And along the way, I picked up some basic theory courses. Um, not well, but I picked them up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, amazingly, when I went to seminary, I took some tests. And I remember I uh, tested out of um, counterpoint. I didn't have to take that when I got seminary. But I was accepted provisionally at seminary. And since I walked in the door without a, <clears throat> without a music degree, I didn't have a recital. And I was trying to be a voice major at seminary. So my first semester at seminary, I had to sing a recital. And that was pretty terrifying. <laughs> I, I, don't, I found the recital after I had been teaching for 20 or 30 years. I found a program, and I don't remember having sung any of those pieces. Not a one of them. <laughs> it's pretty much force fed. Jenny, did you sing it all at Agnes Scott? I didn't. I sang uh, in uh, the choir at my little Presbyterian church that I grew up in. If you were out of, we had a community children's choir, but once you were, say, in seventh grade, uh, you were a part of the adult choir. And I, ha I have pictures of me at about 12 or 13 years old in the church choir. But no, I didn't. I don't know why. I, I wasn't particularly interested in an all-female uh, choir. I really liked the, the mix of male and female mm -hmm. voices. And, I, and uh, we didn't have a particularly good choral program at college, and it just didn't attract me. But I've been in every choir Bill's ever directed, mm -hmm. and uh, I've been in the BHPC choir probably 40 years mm. off and on because Bill directed music at, at other churches for a while. So right, I've been right. in and out, but uh, well, now I've been singing by Linda Griggs for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> were y'all, um, uh, were y'all married when you went to seminary yes. at that yes. point? Okay. And we graduated then, and got married and went to seminary all in a couple of weeks. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> And then from what, where did, where did life take you after seminary? Well, I remember being talked to by a number of pastors who came to seminary that my last semester and one of them was named Otis Brooks. And I asked a lot of questions. And then I said, um, I said, Otis, you're not asking me any questions. And he said, I'm learning a great deal. <laughs> and Otis was just such a prince of a man. I went to Louisiana, Monroe, Louisiana, to work with him, and that lasted about nine weeks, and the wheels came off of that, and Otis left. And I stayed there a total of two years and eight months, and two weeks, four days, three hours, and 27 <laughs> minutes. And who's counting? You know, it was a wonderful time. They were wonderful people. A church uh, that didn't like Otis, that tells you a lot about it. Uh, so. Yeah. And there was a great deal of tension and friction going on that the, the committee didn't even own up to. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. But when but, we moved here, of course, we came straight to Vestavia because yeah. we knew that Otis was the minister there. So that, that's mm -hmm. how we ended up at VHBC. Mm. We met the Pittmans in Monroe. The Chris and Jerry uh, Chris Pittman and Jerry were members and, there. And uh, from Monroe, I went back to Louisville to work in a church and then uh, the church and I agreed that I I really didn't learn to play with other boys and girls real well. And uh, I did a number of independent things. I ran a small theater in downtown Louisville and uh, taught part-time at a total of five different 
colleges in the area. And then um, one of the few things in life I'm willing to assign to divine intervention, I got uh, the job at Samford. I think Otis uh, put in a word. I had a friend who was on the faculty, Erwin Ray, who endorsed my um, uh, application. And um, specifically, the president had told the dean, Claude Ray, to find a base. Uh, and it turned out that I had some operatic background. I'd sung with Kentucky Opera a total of about seven years. And um, so I was handed that after I agreed to teach voice. Um, I think my contract when I retired still read, and assist in the opera program as needed. <laughs> I assisted for 33 years. Right, right. <laughs> <clears throat> so 33 years at Sanford. Right. Wow. Wow. And, uh, Jenny, what has your work and career life been like uh, well, in that time? I was an English major, and I started out teaching. I taught it, my first year. I taught uh, seventh and eighth grade in a really rough inner city school in Louisville, Kentucky. That sent me back to graduate school to get a master's <laughs> degree. I taught in a college prep high school the year I was working on my master's degree. And then when, when we moved here, I taught at Birmingham Southern for eight years as an adjunct, which meant mostly freshman English classes and mm. grading endless freshman essays. Um, and after that, I decided I, I, I made the mistake of counting up how many essays I had graded <laughs> and decided I didn't want to do that anymore and was lucky to get a job with uh, Bell South, actually in the employment office as a recruiter. And then after I was there a year, uh, George Elliott, uh, invited me over to the, his department, which was the PR department, and I became the executive speechwriter and education director there and uh, did that for 12 years. And then um, when, I, when the state president I was writing speeches for retired, I moved over to a job with the uh, Independent College Association of Alabama. It's the association that Samford and Birmingham Southern and uh, about 15 other private colleges in Alabama belong to. So I was part fundraiser and part lobbyist for mm -hmm. that group. So I um, had a conversation with somebody else recently who's retired, a uh, retired educator. And he said that he was grateful to be retired in the year 2020. Uh, such, oh, as, gosh, yes. <laughs> such as things are. I can't imagine. But, uh, you know, both of you being in education, I think, um, you know, and for the period of time that you were to be able to look back from now until that time and see so many different changes and so many. You know, I retired in uh, 2010 and I had already gone on record to say <laughs> I couldn't go back uh, to the way things were being taught at Sanford even then long before COVID. Just everything had changed so much. Um, and what, that's not a bad thing. That's just the reality of, of the times we live in. And uh, course offerings were different and the way your grading was different. One of my last semesters, I was asked to teach music or preach, which I'd done my very first two semesters there. And just the way the loads worked out. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. But um, man, the resources uh, for a music or preach yeah. course, the, each chapter, you could pay $25 and you had access to a, a online service 
And each chapter had something that looked like a BBC production of whatever that chapter was about, whether it was a composer or a period of yeah. music or whatever. Everything, the resources were just incredible. Everything was so different and continued to change mm-hmm. well after I was gone. Yeah. I'm chairing my mm-hmm. college class's 55th reunion next spring, which is probably going to be virtual. But the college and Bill's college, too, they are hurting financially. They're yeah, I think Sanford's really, doing, really, really hurting. My impression is that Sanford's doing a better job than either one of those schools. Um, Agnes Scott is incredibly endowed, but still, uh, they're struggling. Uh, but Sanford seems to be, at least talking to Joe and to Julie Boyd, seems to be adapting and moving on. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't mm-hmm. like know what all that means. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough, tough time. It's really a hard time. Yeah. Well, um, with, with your uh, involvement at VHBC through the years, sort of on and off at different times, what kinds of things are you involved with uh, outside of, of choir? Well, I've done just about everything. Bill's been in and out, you know, going, uh, working at other churches. Mm-hmm. I've done everything from uh, been a deacon. I've chaired the deacons. Back when we had a Sunday school superintendent, I did that. Um I was the budget chair one year, believe it or not. And one thing I'm especially proud of, I was on your search committee. Yes. It's one of my most recent things. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, the, the church that I served previously um, had uh, on the wall very small pictures of the pastors who had served the church since 1841 when it was founded. But Sunday school superintendents had enormous <laughs> portraits on the wall. I like uh, it. So, uh, <laughs> and what was important, boy? They knew where the priority. <laughs> yeah. But um, and the book, the uh, the book group as well. Oh yeah, the Round Table mm-hmm. Book Club. I inherited that from Sandy Gillis uh, when when her health required her to uh, step back from that. Yeah, and we're trying to figure out how to get that going again. Um, tell us a little bit about your family. I know you've got uh, family in town. In fact, I think you have uh, carpool duty coming up here shortly we today that we're recording this. <laughs> we have, we are lucky that both of our daughters live here and they live about five minutes from us, each of them in different directions, but all in Homewood. We're all very closely tied to uh, Homewood. And uh, we have, our older daughter has one son. He's a sophomore at Jacksonville State. He went there hoping to play football, and he has gotten to dress out. He hasn't gotten to actually play in a game yet, but he's on the roster, and he has dressed out, and he's enjoying it. Uh, Elizabeth's three children, she's our younger daughter, are still in Homewood schools. Frank is a senior. And they're trying to figure out how to do show choir mm. <laughs> in the middle of COVID. That's uh, matters a great deal to him. He's also the long snapper on the football team. And Grace is a junior varsity cheerleader. And Henry is a uh, seventh grader. And his team just were the runners up in the Metro football championship. So we're lucky to have them nearby and to be very involved mm-hmm. in their lives. We're the main transportation source. <laughs> well, <laughs> those that transportation, but I'm sure they're, they're <laughs> lucky to have lucky to have y'all close uh, for other things as well. 
Um, I will get to my last question in just a second, but Bill, tell us a little bit about your um, pottery work. I think some folks may be interested to hear about that. Well, I tried at some point, I decided that at the, the birthdays that had zeros in them, I would try to do something I hadn't done before. So when I was 40, I um, took the plunge and I got with a friend of mine. I may, you may remember the name uh, Middow, uh, Benny Middow at Montevallo mm-hmm. for a long time. His wife at that time uh, was Pam Middow, and she had a shop in Montevallo. And we were at an evening party. Called Montevallo Mud. Yeah, Montevallo Mud. <laughs> and I talked to her and I said, I've always wanted to do that. And she said, come on down and I'll teach you. So for that summer, when I should have been finishing my doctoral project, uh, I spent every Saturday uh, an hour down there in Montevallo with a two-hour commitment because it's 30 minutes down there and 30 minutes back. But the thing that made that work was there was no classes in pottery being taught at Samford in the summer. So during the week, I could use those facilities. And over time, I began to acquire some equipment. But that I, I thought the other day, I wish I could get in touch with Pam and and thank her again for giving me that part of my life. Um, I really am still fascinated by what it feels like and what it looks like and the whole process. It's a difficult thing to do. And, and typical of me, I found a way to make it harder um, because I dig my own clay. And um, But every step of the process is is fascinating to me. How that clay got there and what properties it has that the other clays don't have and uh, how it accepts the glazes or doesn't, and uh, what it does in the kiln. All of that is uh, is interesting. During COVID and this this time of <laughs> of being trapped in your house, I have started making some things that are not for somebody else, and that's new for me. Usually, it's I'm down there making mugs for somebody, or uh, I, Lowell Van and I just finished a project of making a hundred commemorative plates to give to donors for contributions to the school of the arts mm-hmm. that have a logo stamped in the middle and the Homewood of uh, education foundation, education foundation found out about that. And I made 50 uh, plates for them with their logo stamped in the middle. But usually I'm working on somebody's pot, somebody's mugs or whatever, but I've, I've been experimenting with different kinds of things and different kinds of textures and, it's really been satisfying. However, I will say uh, I've had to put that on hold because I am finishing today, today and tomorrow the last piece of furniture for my granddaughter's bedroom suit. She wanted a floating bedside table made out of pallet wood. Teaching pallet wood to float is no small matter. <laughs> I have finally gotten it finished, I think. Um, <clears throat> But um, it's, there's some things to add. Um, but hopefully today and tomorrow that will be, by end of tomorrow, it's going to be hanging or floating on her wall. So, and hopefully and, she won't change her mind, which, yeah, which she does about every right, six months. Right. Then so. I get back in the mud. <laughs> well, let me, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but I'm curious if you have similarities and differences between performing music and then working with uh, either clay or wood, uh, how, how does that strike you? The real satisfying thing about working with both wood and with clay is that it lasts. And the other art form that I 
have done for 50 years. When I close my mouth, it's over. Mm. And I, I don't know any successful recording of a performance. There are recordings of live performances, but those are recordings of sounds and not the dialogue that exists between performer and audience. And I'm, I'm really big on that. Ask my poor students, you know, they, I made them look at the audience and et cetera, et cetera. That that's very important to me, but the, the working with wood and clay is more like teaching than it is like performance. It's taking something that's very raw and, and shaping it into something else. Um, I remember I was working with a young man. It was the second semester of his junior year. And I would give anything if I could remember what I said. But what he said in response was, well, Dr. Bugger, if I do that, that'll change the whole way I sing. I've been saying whatever it was and trying to change the way he sang <laughs> for three semesters or three years almost. And so at the, from that point on, I just, as a freshman came in, I said, I'm going to change the way you sing. Let's get that out of the way and accept that and let's move on. But um, I, I, I think about that when I think about shaping wood or shaping clay, the process of trying to, to shape a voice and teach a person um, a different way to do something. The, mm -hmm. the frustrating thing for the student, obviously, is that they've been doing it a long time before they come to, to college and mm -hmm. been praised for doing it that way. And, to, and, and I felt a great deal of kinship with them when I went to the John J. Campbell School of Folk Art and, tr and had to change the way I threw because I was listening to a really fine teacher. And I could see pottery. It, uh, pottery. And, and everything I was working on, I could see and feel. And I'm talking to students who can't do either one of those. They can't see or feel the changes I was trying to get them to invoke. And uh, it, it was a turning point for me about at mm. least my appreciation for their frustration. Mm. Interesting. I, one of our, our church members has, who was in <clears throat> education administration uh, has said that uh, when he was principal, every summer he would, uh, he himself, and he would instruct all of his faculty members to undertake something new so that they could feel what it was like to be right. in the students' What a position. great idea. Yeah, I, th I thought that was great. And that, that sounds just like what you were experiencing to, to sort of. I challenged my faculty when I got back. We started back in the fall. To, I told them what I'd experienced and challenged them to do it. I, as usual, I, I have a great deal of influence. I don't know nobody did that. But <laughs> um, yeah, exactly what, what that was. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a really delightful conversation. Thank you. And uh, I have. Uh, finished all of these conversations with the question about what's bringing you life. Jesus in the second half of John 10, 10 says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So I'd love to hear from both of you what's bringing life to you. For me, it's always books, mm. reading, reading and books. Um, <clears throat> and I read anything and everything, but most recently I've been going back through the novels of Anne Perry, who I like. It's not great literature. It's good, but they're uh, mystery novels set in Victorian England. And so it's just a little bit of an escape from the modern world that I enjoy. Mm. And my children talked me into getting Apple Music on my phone. So I've enjoyed downloading things to walk to on mm. my daily walk. And I have 
a playlist called The Essential Brahms, another The Essential Chopin, and my high school favorite, Johnny Mathis, and <laughs> a lot of things in between. But Jenny, I've I played you as, as a hip hop uh, fan. <laughs> I, I'm surprised. Oh, that's way, yeah. I'm way before hip hop. <laughs> Now I do, I do have to ask: uh, Are you the kind of reader who can uh, have four or five books going simultaneously? Or are you a one at a time kind of? I'm reader? pretty much a one at a time. Yeah, yeah, but not necessarily in order. I am reading all these Ann Perry books in order, and I'm on number twenty, I think, of thirty-two. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bill, what about you? What brings you life these days? told my students when I retired, the only thing I feared about retirement was that I didn't have a project. <clears throat> and my whole life is centered around finishing one project so I could get to start on the next project. And over time, I have developed a number of projects, obviously we refer to the woodworking and pottery. But um, as long as I can have a project, I can feel fulfilled. You know, the other things going on around the world, I'd, I'd work real hard not to pay attention to and if he doesn't have a project, you don't want to be around him. Yeah. <laughs> Generally not fine. <laughs> so I'm afraid at that point, I'm very much like my father. Um, but yeah, that's, that's very satisfying to start something and finish it and put it in front of you and, you know, let it have a life of its own. Um, those are good things that, that keeps me pumping. Mm. Thank you yeah. both for those, those reflections. This has been great. And I really, um, I appreciate you taking time out today to thanks for including us. Oh well, and I, we I think, enjoyed it. Well, thanks, and I think folks will be really thrilled to be able to to learn a little bit more about both of you and to uh, and listen to this conversation. So, thank you. Appreciate Great. what you're doing, Marty. I don't know how you do it, but I appreciate oh. your work. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you for that. I I appreciate you your support. All right, well. y'all take care. Thank bye bye. Bye. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes of this podcast. Today's episode concludes with It Is Well With My Soul.